coming up on Millennial. It's imports and exports and all of these things. It's the housing market. So as all of these things begin to shift, overall, we will see inflation go down. Hot price drop summer. That's what I'm going <laughs> to call it. Hot price drop summer. We want it here. If you tell someone they can't have something, what do they want? They want to, to read it and do it. So it's like, on the one hand, it's frustrating. But on the other hand, I'm like, if it encourages people to read more, have at it, Texas. Now we're going to get on to a story about another industry that millennials are killing. Thank you for pointing this out, Andrew. I'd written a much more headline sounding title for this story. Uh, Millennials are killing wine. I thought we were saving it. I drink enough wine to save the wine industry. Welcome to Millennial, the home of fake adulting, but real talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Maura. And I'm Pamela. I wanted to tell you guys that we are about three years into the pandemic now. And last weekend was the first time, or not last weekend, just a few days ago, was the first time that I ever got reprimanded for daring to wear a mask out in public and also like trying to keep social distancing. I know. I thought I was safe. This is me being in my dumb liberal bubble. I thought that, you know, this would not happen to me here. (laughs) But apparently, um, even I'm not immune out here in the Bay Area. Um, Where were you? Was it? Yeah. Well, yeah, this was like especially funny because I had taken my dog out on a walk and I was walking to the library because I wanted to check some books out. As you all know, I'm trying to read more this year. So I figured that would be a nice little walk. The public library is not very far away. And after I came out of the library, obviously, you still have to wear your masks inside out here in California. Um, And so I had my mask kind of dangling from my ear because there was nobody around when I came out. And I thought, well, I'll just like treat myself with a little fresh air. (laughs) Treat yourself. (laughs) And And then I went over to the water fountain and I saw this this man coming from the opposite end. And as he saw me going towards the water fountain, I saw him speeding up. So I thought, well, this is fine. He's probably very thirsty. So I'll just like (laughs) slow down and like keep some distance. And he wasn't wearing a mask. I thought nothing of it because, you know, if you're outside and you're keeping distance, it's it's you're probably fine if you don't want to wear it. But then he like definitely side eyed me heavily for, you know, not wanting to get so close and like clearly took offense that I was like (laughs) waiting at a respectable distance for him to use this water fountain yeah and he was like well there's another spout here and i said i know but i'm just you know i'll just wait it's okay take your time and um and then he he like grumbled something about masks because he saw that i had a mask like hanging off of the side of my face so yeah he was clearly not a fan and um it's fine it's whatever because i'm just out here doing the most to keep myself safe and if he has a problem with that then it's not my problem but yeah. yeah, I ha- I I just wonder about how masking just seems to live rent free in these people's heads because it upsets them so much. Like it offends them so much to see another person wearing a mask in a public space. Right. Or like, how dare you not want to get like up close and personal with me? But it's like, even if we weren't masking at all and the pandemic was non-existent, I still probably wouldn't want to get that close to you. No. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, flu so, season is still churning along. Right. Like, there also, I had plenty my of dog with me. No, no way for him to know if like my dog was aggressive, and maybe that's why I was holding back. Yeah, it could happen. I know Jasper's very small, but he could still be an aggressive <laughs> dog. <laughs> he's hot. He's tough. He's tough. You might look he's sweet a and innocent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well. Pam, your incident comes as California is going to be repealing their mask mandate. New York is going to be rolling back their mask mandate. It just broke before we started recording the show. New Jersey and Massachusetts are going to be pulling back their mask mandates in schools. I feel like over the next few weeks, we're going to see these mask mandates falling down, even though, um, well, I mean, COVID cases are falling. They're still extremely high, especially when you look at the rest of the, the pandemic thus far. I think we're going to see a lot of these mask mandates falling. I'm personally hoping for my state of Nevada to drop theirs. I'll still wear my mask, but as I was telling you guys last night, (laughs) sorry for sounding like a snob, but at the gym, when I'm doing cardio, I hate wearing that mask. And once the mask mandate comes down, I'm not going to be wearing the mask while while working out. Honestly, I'm shocked that California is lifting, has announced that they're lifting theirs before Nevada has announced that they're lifting yeah. theirs. I really California thought we were going to be like the like, final frontier out here. Yeah. But you look at other countries that have also taken the pandemic very seriously, and they've been rolling back some of their mandates and other requirements as well. So we'll see how, how fast they all fall. I like how so California is hosting the Super Bowl this Sunday. They're taking down the mask mandate the day after the Super Bowl. So it's like, OK, all the Super Bowl tours have gone home. We can take off our masks now. But right now it's like, oh, now we can't blame the NFL, which is like a big moneymaker for the <laughs> yeah. state this year. Yeah. <laughs> by proxy of having the Super Bowl in L.A. How many Super Bowl tourists are going to say, oh, the mask mandate ends tomorrow? What's one day? Right. Like, I'm just right. all of them. Really hard time all imagining that. And we spoke about this before Omicron broke out when they when all the mask mandates were pulled back, at least here in Nevada. The second they got rid of that statewide mask mandate, the masks flew off. I was mad at people. I was like, don't you all need like a transition period? Like I need like a three week transition period. I was angry. I'm definitely going to need one. And I now I'm going to live in fear (laughs) off of this one bad experience that everybody's going to be silently judging me. But yeah, I'll just like have to go into Costco with my blinders on because places like Costco are the worst, right? Nobody has any sense of personal space there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, especially when it's crowded. Forget about it. Pam, you can understand what it's like to be, you know, in the southeast where I did. I did get a taste (laughs) of what you go through on the daily. And I I feel for you even more than I already did. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I'm inside the Atlanta perimeter. So inside the perimeter, it's way better, way more of a progressive population. You step two feet outside the perimeter and it's like, take the mask off. Free your face. (laughs) Free your face. It's just hashtag free the face. Yeah, well, we, exactly. We went to Tahoe in September and just crossing over the Nevada border, all of a sudden masks were nobody was wearing masks, which is so weird because we were literally maybe like five minutes. Well, that's Reno, baby. California that's, border. I know. That's the Wild West for and, you. And we were all like, we felt shamed into taking our masks off and luckily we were just eating at a, an outdoor restaurant so it wasn't that uncomfortable but it was still like this feels weird to go up and order without the mask yeah so, 
It's uh, Vegas has been pretty good about wearing masks. There's, you know, the odd person at the gym who isn't, and I get it. But um, most people at Costco and Target and everywhere else pretty good about wearing masks. But so anyway, again, this will be my prediction. Um, All these mask mandates, I think, are going to fall really quick, especially after California and New York, the two biggest states in the country, very blue states are pulling down their mask mandates. Let's go, other states. Now, obviously, every state doesn't have a mask mandate, (coughs) Georgia, uh, but Nevada has. Many states have never had one. No. Um, I'm just curious to see how quickly some states end up putting their mask mandates back up. I know. That's what I've been thinking of, too. Well, if there's another dangerous variant, yes, but... If there if there's another variant and the case numbers don't soar, then I don't think they will put the mask mandates. How how often can we keep being pushed back and forth? Like people are fed up with this. It's very stressful. And and wearing demeaning. a mask is stressful and demeaning. The back and forth over, oh, you don't have to wear it anymore. Oh, oh I see. Never yeah. mind. Now you have to again at the food store. Stuff like that. Yeah. I don't know. I think people to borrow a term from the other side of the aisle, I think people are being snowflakes about masks because it's just really not a big fucking deal. And regardless of what my state does or what other states do, I will continue wearing mine as long as I feel like it's necessary. Yeah, I'll still be wearing it in places for sure. There's lots of benefits besides just p- protecting yourself from COVID. Like, Laura, you like not having to smile, you said last night. At right. People. I love yeah. not having to... Uh, just worry about my facial expression in general, you know? I can just be mm-hmm. as I am. It feels like uh, you get to be anonymous in a way when you're out in public with a mask on. I kind of like it. Hey, quick PSA before we get to a great interview today on inflation. Just wanted to let everybody know that our contact forms haven't been working on the website. And hopefully people have noticed this. I noticed that when you tried to submit a message, there was an error message. So hopefully nobody submitted a message thinking that it actually went through when it didn't. Those contact forms are now fixed. Not totally sure what happened. Something on the back end, but they're both working And by both, I mean uh, the main contact form and the confessional. So if you have anything to submit to us, please do so on millennialshow.com. Or of course, you can email millennialshow at gmail.com or hit us up on our social media channels. So we've seen talk of inflation in the headlines a lot over the past few weeks. And to help us understand what's going on, we are now joined by Kara, the founder of Bravely Go, an award-winning international financial education company that's been featured on NPR, Market Watch, Fast Company, and the New York Times. She's at bravelygo.co, and we Bravely Go on Instagram and TikTok, and then Bravely Go on Twitter. We'll also have links in the show notes. Hi, Kara. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. So before we talk about what's currently going on with inflation, can you please explain to us, like we're five years old, because we do a lot of fake adulting here, mm-hmm. um, so we have a basic understanding at the start of this, what is inflation? Yeah, very basic, like your basic bitch definition is inflation is a dollar losing value, losing some of its value. So I always tell people, like, if you ever talk to your grandparents or older people and they're like, well, I used to go, like my grandmother tells me she used to go to the movies for a nickel and we go for 20 bucks. That's inflation right there. Right. That is also depressing right there. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm like a nickel. Really? Are you lying? She's like, I was born 1923, baby. Gone with the wind. It was just released. It was so amazing. So obviously the reason that we wanted to have you on somebody that can speak to this subject way better than we can is because like Andrew said, inflation has been in the news quite a bit. Um, specifically because it hit kind of a bit of a high, right? In December, 7.1%, the highest it's been since 1980 when it was at 14.6. So I guess we're not the worst it's ever been in this country, but it is still probably something that people should be thinking about because it is going to affect everybody. Um, So can you speak a little bit about why inflation is occurring right now and why we're seeing it happen and why it's kind of high right now in comparison to past years? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean... (laughs) I believe it's uh, like a Chinese curse. It's like, may you live in interesting times. We are living in interesting times, that's for sure. And so what's happening with inflation is interesting from an economic um, point of view because it's it's several major things happening at once. So of course, there's the ongoing pandemic, right? Which in turn means um, a significant chunk of the population has been or is currently out of work. The supply chain has been severely damaged and is not going to magically fix itself overnight. So the flow of goods um, has been, I want to say like plugged to to kind of like go with my water metaphor here. (laughs) And the United States government, as well as many other governments in the world, but here in the United States, um, the Federal Reserve, which manages our banking system, has done several major um, financial moves over the last two years, one of which being it's commonly referred to as printing money, which I personally don't like that phrase because it's very misleading and people literally think like Jerome Powell, who is the federal uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, who I like to call grandpa money bags. People envision him like (laughs) literally printing money furiously in his basement and then like scattering it to the winds in the United States. And that's like not what's happening. Um, But what the Federal Reserve has been doing is buying treasury bonds. And so the treasury, we have the department of treasury, right? And Janet Yellen, who I like to call grandma Glassbreaker because she is the first female (laughs) (laughs) secretary of the treasury. I do a lot of nicknames on my, y'all do a lot of like adulting moments and I do a lot of nicknames to keep people really, (laughs) really into it. So grandpa Moneybags and grandma Glassbreaker have basically, grandpa Moneybags has been buying bonds from grandma Glassbreaker's department. And so you might be thinking, okay, well, how does that translate to like free money being thrown into the economy. Well, basically when that happens, what is going on is that the the Federal Reserve is creating new dollars that did not exist before. So there's these digital transactions, like all of these things are happening online, but then you and I are going to the ATM and like pulling out the money. Um, And so the Federal Reserve has been kind of like creating it, sending it to the banks, and we're actually pulling it out. So that's when they say like, we're printing money. That's kind of what they're talking about. And that has been a big driver of inflation because the more money in an economy, um, the less valuable each piece of money is, right? I always like to tell people like, think about like when Kanye comes out with his latest Yeezys, like if there's only 60 Yeezys, each pair of shoes is going to be worth a thousand dollars. But if he makes 60,000 Yeezys, each pair of shoes is only going to be worth 50 bucks, right? Because there's more. So that's kind of what's been happening with our dollars. But it's been compounded by 
the supply chain issues, while the demand for um, goods has still remained high, and the fact that um, people are out of work. I do want to take a, I know I'm talking for a long time now, (laughs) but I I do want to take a quick second to say a lot of people have also blamed the stimulus checks and said that's caused inflation. And that's really, truly not even remotely a cause of inflation, (laughs) like at all. (laughs) So I just really want to put that to bed. If anyone is believing that, it's not. And you've, you said a few minutes ago that inflation is happening around the world, and obviously not every country has had stimulus checks like America has. So that's another reason to believe what you just said. Yes. Right. Yes. And just to kind of put that to bed and clear it up, um, where does the stimulus money come from? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, kind of two parts. So Again, so what's interesting about what's interesting about the United States is we collect a ton of tax revenue, right? Like even from people that, you know, you hear a lot of of phrases like tax the rich and like Jeff Bezos doesn't pay taxes, but like a lot, pretty much everyone in the United States is paying some form of tax, even if they should be paying more or less or whatever it is. We collect a lot of money. Um, We also, as Grandpa Moneybags has shown us all in the last two years, have the ability to create more money. So revenue, or rather the stimulus um, can come from each of those places. These stimulus checks came from tax revenue. It was really just like a a redirection of tax revenue. So your tax dollars is what paid your stimulus check effectively. Back at work, Mm. getting right back to you. (laughs) Yeah. It's good to know. It's good to dispel the myth that stimulus checks were being pulled from somewhere um, midair. Now, I'm wondering, too, because I think this is also a scary term for folks, um, hearing about rising interest rates um, in terms of what the federal government is doing about inflation. I want to talk about how rising interest rates can help lower the cost of goods for consumers. So, It's important when people are thinking about this to understand what interest rates are relevant in your life. Like, for example, rising mortgage interest rates are largely being touted as a a fairly good thing because it will hopefully help slow down the demand for housing because people will be like, oh, well, I don't want to pay, you know, 4%. My friend bought her house and got 0.75%, you know, um, sort of thing. So that, but like, if you don't own a mortgage or like, if you don't have a mortgage, rising mortgage rates don't really impact your day-to-day life, right? Right. Like I'm a renter, rising mortgage rates don't super impact my life. Maybe my landlord would increase my rent because of that, but I, I, well, I don't want to write that off. Landlords can do whatever they want. And there are a lot of (laughs) landlords in this country, but I don't see that as a major issue for non-mortgage holders, for example. But like most Americans have some sort of loan, whether that be like a credit card, right? Or they have access to some sort of credit, I should say, whether that's a credit card or a student loan um, or a medical debt or an auto debt, right? Like some sort of debt that they owe that has an interest rate. And if you have a variable interest rate, then rising interest rates could definitely be a concern because Mm. you could go from 3% to 8% or from 16% to 22%, which would make a meaningful difference um, in your day-to-day life. 
I'm actually glad you did that because I think when people hear rising interest rates, they think that it's like a blanket increase that applies to every industry. And Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that that's not necessarily the case or that people won't sort of be expecting to see interest go up on every loan they have. How does rising interest rates or raising interest rates, excuse me, lower the cost of goods for consumers? So going back to inflation, like if in historically, if inflation gets too high, not only does the power of your dollar decrease, but the power of your wages start to decrease because you're essentially taking a paycheck every single month or a pay cut rather every single month that inflation continues to go up. So your wages start to decrease in value. Um, So with rising interest rates, two things, two major things could happen. One, if you're, if we're continuing to see rising inflation and we are paying higher interest rates, you know, the average everyday American is, could be caught in a very, very, uncomfortable financial situation where there is basically no free money in their budget anymore. You know, like maybe right now you're like, Oh, I have like 200 extra dollars a month to do whatever I want with that will disappear because everything is getting more expensive. And so that $200 is going to pay for your milk and your rent and all of those things. So that's something to be, I would definitely be concerned about that, you know, like with rising interest rates on credit cards and things, but the flip side of it is, there are interest rates that work in your favor, like on your savings accounts, Mm -hmm. right? So we all watched, I don't know about y'all, but like I got multiple emails in 2020 that were like, hey, this is just your bank checking in. Um, Your interest rate is dropping again. Just so, just FYI, (laughs) I got like five emails about that. Um, So my savings accounts went from having a 2% interest rate down to having a 0.5% interest rate. So rising interest rates here could mean we go from 0.5 or 0.1% up to 1%, right? And so in that way, your money is working better for you. So there's definitely a sharp cut, but there is also like a small silver lining. I won't act like savings accounts are vehicles for wealth building. They're really not. But if a bank is going to give me, let's say like I would have made $50 on 0.5% interest and I'm going to make $100 in interest if it goes up to 1%. Like, I'm going to take that extra 50 bucks. Right. Yeah, 100%. So the federal government is going to be rising, raising the interest rates. And it seems like there's a lot of panic around that. Every time we hear about this, like the stock market drops. It sounds like most consumers don't need to be worried about this. It's just the stock market reacting violently. The stock market react. The stock market is so moody. Stock yeah. market is moody AF. Yeah. Like it just, everything makes the stock market move. And, you know, like I always tell people in 2017, Oprah joined Weight Watchers and bought Weight Watchers stock. And she single-handedly generated $750 million in stock market value. Ooh. So like, it's really... It's not a great idea to get so emotionally attached to, in fact, it's an outright bad idea to get emotionally attached to a specific return or a specific type of behavior in the market to assume the market will always go up because it's been mostly going up over the last two years. Like, no, we all lived through 2008. We all know. And if we look back, obviously there's like the great depression, right. And the recession of the seventies and the, um, the crash black Friday and the 1980s, but there are also just smaller dips and corrections 
all the time in the market. So this short-term lens of like, oh, well, the Fed's raising interest rates, you know, maybe in March, maybe in April, we're not quite sure when it's going to happen. Like panic. Hopefully you'll live a long life. You're going to be doing a lot of panicking if every time the Fed changes (laughs) something. So like, just let it go is what I try to tell people. So one of the things that you bring up actually in a story you have saved on your Instagram is that the rise in costs around goods are actually entirely up to the corporation. And one example that you share, the one I was getting at, is Arizona iced tea. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, Laura's boyfriend gave her an Arizona iced tea just before recording the show. He had no clue okay. you were coming on or your your story. So it was very interesting timing. Um, but the example you make on Instagram is that Arizona iced tea, and they, they've prided themselves on this, has always sold their standard can for 99 cents. And they've refused to raise prices. And you explain why. And then I actually was watching a video that brought up the point that corporations raise their prices, even though they are doing absolutely fantastic and their CEOs Mm -hmm. are making more money than ever. A good example is Chipotle. The prices have been going up on their ingredients, on their bowls, etc. Meanwhile, they are doing gangbusters. It's not like they're suffering. Dollar Tree raised the prices to $1.25. It's not like they were suffering. They've made tons of money. So really, Mm -hmm. we need to be pissed at corporations for just raising their prices and blaming it on inflation. Are they blaming it on inflation when they shouldn't be? Totally. They are. They're blaming Uh. it on inflation and they're blaming it on the government, which is kind of a favorite punching bag for everyone, right? (laughs) Like certainly I have spent time being like, oh, the government. Um, But yeah, I pulled up a few statistics. So um, McDonald's did $23 billion in revenue in 2021 and ExxonMobil reported $8.9 billion in profit just in Q4 2021. So when we talk about businesses being like, everyone likes to talk about the free market, you know, and especially if you are more conservative, if you're conservative, or if you're more of a libertarian and you are very anti like government oversight, the free market is sacred to you. And so I always like to tell people like, okay, well, let's look at the free market. Let's look at what's actually happening here. Cause right now, what we have is a market that is continuing to prioritize shareholder value and um, CEO pay over worker pay and over consumer prices. So like if ExxonMobil decided, okay, we're going to sell gas stations, our gas at $4 cheaper per gallon, that's going to allow the individual gas stations to lower their price, which in turn means that all of us here on the call can fill up for less. But ExxonMobil is not doing that because (laughs) they want to be as profitable as possible. And so they're using the kind of um, they're using inflation as a scapegoat to say like, oh, well, this is out of our hands. And like, uh, if only the Fed wasn't doing what it's doing, like maybe we could do something, but we can't. Yeah. But if we look at the numbers, it's like you could you could absolutely do like six billion in revenue (laughs) for just Q4. Mm hmm. Oh, it's so frustrating. It really is to watch these people who have more money than God, I mean, more money than they could ever know what to do with, be so, I mean, greedy is really the only word for it. It seems like it's Mm -hmm. more about the competition to get to a certain revenue than it is about having that money for yourself and your family. Right. Right. And then to exceed that to like, oh, well, we did yeah. 9 billion in Q4. Like we have to do 
12 billion in Q1 2022. Like it's truly never ending. Yeah. And they want to go to space. <sighs> Is this also part of the reason why some products are also, it seems like they're getting smaller, even though we're paying more for them? Oh, yeah. So that is also uh, like a well-documented phenomenon where companies will shrink products and charge the same price. And it's a cost-cutting measure on the company's end. Or like what's interesting in the Arizona iced tea example that is saved as a highlight on my Instagram is that Arizona did do something sort of similar like that, but for for the good. Um, So like on the back end, Arizona as a company switched the type of aluminum they were using to a lighter, thinner aluminum, which costs less per pound so that the company would save money, um, but could continue to sell the iced tea for 99 cents. Right. Um, and so kind of the opposite of that happens with this. It has a name that is escaping me. It's like the shrink, the like effect or something where companies will say like, oh, well, we'll just take like six ounces out of this deodorant or something um, to save us money, but we're to save us money on the creation of this product, but we are going to continue to sell it at the same price. So now the consumer needs to buy like one extra deodorant a year because they're losing six ounces each time. It's very sneaky. Right. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. It always makes me mad to think about how much I'm spending on packaging for products. Mm-hmm. I haven't even yes. thought about the reduction in the product itself. I'm over here worrying about like the pink tax, which obviously is <laughs> yeah. very real. Yes. And not about like the amount of product I'm actually getting in the thing. I know. So obviously, we've talked a lot about prices going up. Um, is there a light at the, at the end of the tunnel here? Is there a point in which we're going to see prices dip back down? Yes, there definitely is that point. That point is coming. I don't know when that point is. <laughs> um, I thought a lot about this question. I was like, maybe I should be optimistic and be like, I think it by summer. But then I was like, Ugh. I remember when Trump was like, the heat is just going to kill COVID. And like two years later, here we are. Last year, we were like hot back summer. Everything's going back to normal. <laughs> nope. Yeah. So I want to recommend everyone a podcast. Um, it's a Planet Money podcast. Um that is one of their like throwbacks. Um, I think I first aired it in like 2018 because it does a really good job of breaking down how the government stopped inflation in the 70s when it was at its highest. I believe it peaked at something like 15.3%. It was like real high. People were like, truly, I think the Federal Reserve in the 70s thought it was going to be like the second revolution because people were furious. Yeah. Um, and so it's a really short, easy listen around um, how the Federal Reserve got inflation back down. And so we know there's still a lot of tools in the government's toolkit. And we also know that more and more people are getting back to work around the world. More and more people are getting vaccinated. So the supply chain, while still in a tough spot, is going to get better. I anticipate it'll probably be another, like at least another year of like, oh, what's happening? But this is not forever. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. And other things are happening too. Like the economy is not just the stock market and it's not just inflation. It's so many other things. It's how many people are working. It's how are these people getting paid? It's imports and exports and all of these things. It's the housing market. So as all of these things begin to shift, Overall, we will see inflation go down. Okay. Hot price drop summer. 
That's what I'm going to call it. Not brainstorm summer. We want it here. Okay. I can't find it. I thought I had it downloaded, but um, if you just Google like planet money um, inflation episode, it should come up. Okay. We'll look that up and we'll, um, we'll plug it for sure. And then our final question for you. So we'll mention your your social media handles again in a moment. But I noticed while preparing for this, you're followed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What is that like? <laughs> Does she like your stuff? <laughs> she, to my knowledge, has never liked anything. And I've added her a few times in my stories. She's never even seen it. I can't imagine she checks her DMs. Like, why would you? <laughs> I'll tell you that when I found out, she's followed me for a few years. And when I found out, out. I was like lying on the couch. My boyfriend was playing this like weird car soccer game. Rocket League. <laughs> Rocket League. Rocket League. I love that game. <laughs> he loves it. Oh, he loves it. He's on there all the time. And I'm like lying on the couch, just like looking at Instagram. And I like shot up. I was like, T-Bone. That's what I call him. I'm like, T-Bone. And he follows me on, on Instagram. And then I started crying. So... <laughs> That's an exactly. appropriate response. Definitely. I would I cry so, too. too. So, um, yeah, it's great. We're not yet besties, but hopefully we will be. (laughs) Yeah, that's so cool. That's 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 really cool. I think she has a long career ahead of her. So there's there's time for that. She's yeah, yeah. I think so. too. I bet she's seeing your posts, even if she doesn't hit like on them or engage with you. But um, well, it's been great having you on, Kara. Thank you so much. Again, Kara is at Bravely Go. It's We Bravely Go on Instagram and TikTok and Bravely Go on Twitter. We'll have links in the show notes. Also, bravelygo.com. You can find lots more info there. She helps you manage this world of money. And and in like in a very, as we can tell today, with uh, what was it? Grandpa money bags and uh, <laughs> grandma glass breaker, <laughs> grandma glass breaker in a colorful way. She helps us sort through it all. So we're all following you here now. And we're uh, we're big fans of your work. So thanks again, Kara. It was great having you on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. You're welcome. And we'll see you this summer for the big uh, inflation <laughs> falling party. De- I'll be so. there. Hot deflation summer. <laughs> yes. Hot deflation summer. That's a much better we way of putting it. it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So before we continue today, Scribd is back to sponsor this week's episode of Millennial. As we work our way into 2022, we've been sharing some of your commitments you've made to yourselves. And if one of them is research, learning, or reading, you should really check out Scribd for the resources they offer. With Scribd, you've got more than a great reading subscription. You've got a resource for learning new skills. Maybe you want to learn how to meditate, level up your cooking game, or launch your career to new heights. Whatever your goals are, Scribd's library can help you achieve them. I love that Scribd has a wide variety of content types, so it's a sort of one-stop shop for knowledge. They've got books, magazines, audiobooks, podcasts, sheet music, and more. When I'm using Scribd, I always start by looking at the bestseller section, and you'll notice they have many well-known self-help books like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep. I read that uh, a while back. It's really good. And then they have excellent fiction like The Alchemist. I know we have a lot of readers in our audience, so you should really check this out. Get instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book. It couldn't be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners two months of Scribd for only 99 cents, so you can get tons of reading in for dirt cheap. 
Go to try.scribd.com slash M-I-L-L to get your first two months for less than a dollar. That's try.scribd.com slash M-I-L-L. Actually, this is a perfect transition again. Wow. I know. I was going to say you couldn't have planned this better, especially because uh, Script has actually been tied to our latest story. I saw that they were in the news uh, uh, maybe even today um, in terms of this hot button issue surrounding banned books. So obviously, you know, the banning of books is nothing new. There's an entire week dedicated to banned books every year, but banned books have been a a uh, very hot issue over the course of the last few weeks specifically, uh, specifically because the push to ban specific books is on the rise across the country. But when you're looking state by state, Texas really takes the cake here. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised because Texas is always doing something that's a little out of pocket. Uh, but a new report in NBC actually revealed that within the first four months of this school year alone, um, in Texas, community members across 100 school districts made 75 formal requests to ban books from libraries. And this kind of sounds like not a lot, you know, um, on sur- the surface level. But when you take a look at what this number is in comparison to 2020. During the same time period last year, uh, the school boards fielded just one request to pull a book from shelves. So this is definitely something, like I said, that's on the rise. And a lot of News reports are actually contributing this to the pandemic, as with a lot of other things we're seeing kind of uh, come to the surface over the course of the last few years, Uh, specifically, you know, with social distance learning still in place and a lot of parents working from home. There are a lot of people that, you know, just have a lot more time on their hands. And this is kind of leading to um, a lot of these formal complaints being put forth. And it's unfortunate that this is uh, directly affecting a lot of conservative states in general. Um, Some of you may have also seen the title Mouse trending over the course of the last week. This is a graphic novel that is centered around the Holocaust. Uh, This was notably banned at a Tennessee school by a Tennessee school board. Um, and, you know, it's far from the only example. Some other titles that have also been banned recently are To Kill a Bo- Mockingbird, The Bluest Eyes, The Handmaid's Tale, Fallen Angels, Heather Has Two Mommies, and also His Dark Materials. So there are no shortage of books that are being contested by parents who feel like they should be able to dictate what every child has access to and not just what they don't want their child to read. And what's interesting about this is this is not the first time many of these books have been challenged. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird, oh my God. <laughs> I think if we had yeah. a nickel for every time that book got challenged, none of us would have student loan debt. Um, same <laughs> for anything by Toni Morrison, you know, Nod to the Bluest Eye, Handmaid's Tale, obviously. Um, but even his dark materials, because it is seen as a critique of the Catholic Church, um, it has been challenged in a number of school districts. So it's just <sighs> something that makes me heave a giant sigh because I'm like, here we go again. I talked about last week how I noted that 
uh, the school district that I was a student at when I was in public school here in Georgia, released a list of like 11 books that they're removing from the school libraries. Um, One of them being The Bluest Eye, which is on the list Pam just shared. And it's just so frustrating and really drives me to want to read the books more. And I have to think kids feel the same way. If you tell someone they can't have something, what do they want? They want to to read it and do it. So it's like, on the one hand, it's frustrating. But on the other hand, I'm like, if it encourages people to read more, have at it, Texas. Yeah. And it brings so much attention to these books. Mouse, for example, flew to the top of the bestseller charts after it came into under public scrutiny. You also have to give a shout out on the flip side of this to bookstores, particularly local ones, who then put up like a whole like banned book section at the front of the store (laughs) to feature them. I love it. Something that is uh, of particular importance in terms of why this particular round of banning books is so significant is that the trend seems to be that a lot of conservatives are trying to get books pulled from school libraries that deal with themes of race or sexuality. So going back to Texas, notably, Texas rep Matt Krause released a list of 850 books back in October. And the idea of releasing this list was uh, to essentially use it as a springboard to launch an investigation into Texas school districts over whether they have the books in question and specifically wanted to know how many copies they had in rotation and how much money these school districts had spent on these books. Um, Again, most of these books included themes of race or sexuality. And this is, again, a trend that we're seeing uh, in terms of like the books that are being uh, brought to the forefront in recent discussions about banned books that have been happening over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, But Krauss specifically said that the books that were on this list might quote, make students feel discomfort, guilt and anguish or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. So this is actually kind of going back to the discussion that Laura put together uh, last year on critical race theory. And it, it really is kind of showing how that is having a trickle down effect now in terms of, you know, what we're seeing going forward. Yeah, a lot of these state representatives who are participating in this, um, also conservative thinkers who are pro-banning books, they're using critical race theory in a lot of cases as the argument to support why these books should be pulled out of school libraries. And as we discussed you know, a year ago at this point, critical race theory is is not a framework that is being taught in public schools. The furthest extent you could take it is that perhaps a teacher bases their approach on how they discuss topics of race in the classroom on their experience learning about critical race theory and sort of what the trickle down effects can be on students depending on how you broach these topics. But Critical race theory is not saying that one race is better than the other. (laughs) Surprise Republicans, that's not what it is. Um, And it's also not setting out to make anyone feel bad about who they are. Um, However, I would say that this theme of wanting to ban books because they address subject matter that makes people uncomfortable, I think that's the real thing. That's the real theme here. 
um, because we see this again and again and again. We remember even in the early 2000s when Harry Potter was being banned um, because people believed that it promoted witchcraft and the occult and Satanism and all sorts of things that have nothing to do with Harry Potter. Um, So this is just people being afraid of things they don't understand and things that they don't want to understand. Yeah. And erasing truths and history mm-hmm. and just, you know, setting up this very narrow education path for people. And then you also have to think about the people who actually want to read these books. Like Mouse. What if Jewish people want to read these books? Like, they can't. What if anybody wants to read these books? They wouldn't be able to. I just can't stand this blanket banning. Of course, any banning is bad, but just the idea that absolutely nobody wants these and we should take this away, take these books away from other from everybody. And I'm I'm glad you brought that up because basically at the end of the day, what ends up happening is that kids end up being the real losers here, uh, specifically in marginalized communities where, uh, you know, children don't often have access to local libraries, like perhaps their school library is the only place where they can access books. Uh, also, kids that maybe um, come from poorer families Parents can't afford to buy them books that are banned. So again, like they rely on the library, which is free at school and both publicly as well. I used to work at a library for full disclosure, just like as a bookshelver, not as a librarian or anything like that. But I do think that one of the cool things about being in that atmosphere is just kind of there was like a librarian's job is not there to to judge you on what you might want to research or on what you're trying to check out. They're literally just there to like help and point you in the right direction and offer recommendations if you're um, looking for recommendations. And I wanted to know if growing up we ever found ourselves seeking ans- seeking answers in the library to questions we were maybe too embarrassed to ask adults about. Yeah, it wasn't something that I was too embarrassed to ask about. It was more um, local history that I wanted to better understand. So this is like a total tangent, and I will try to keep it short. My friends and I, when we were like 12, discovered this abandoned house down the road from one of my friend's houses. And we were just like walking down the road one day and we found it. And it was completely abandoned, like no doors on the hinges. So you could just walk right in. And we had asked some of the neighbors about that house. And they proceeded to tell us that there was some kind of grisly murder there. And of course, me being super into true crime, but also wanting to know if it was true. We spent a few weekends in a row at the library using the microfish to look up old newspaper articles to see if we could confirm this. Oh, my god! And we did. And there was a, a, a murder-suicide in that house. Um, so we were able wow. to confirm that. But that, like, I, those are some of my happiest memories of going to the library is, like, being there with my friends in the, like, intrepid pursuit of knowledge for something. Detective that we, Laura. Yeah, that we wouldn't be able to find anywhere else. Like, where yeah. else would we have gotten that information? Absolutely. I think there are probably – that's a very good example because you were looking for – local historical information. Whereas I think we were just old enough that when we needed to know something, we didn't want to ask an adult. At least I, you know, I just go online and Google, Google. it or Yahoo Ligans <laughs> it or AOL search it. Google was everyone's uh, uh, like anonymous Q&A box. 
Yeah, right, right, right. Ask Jeeves. Yahoo answers. <laughs> How about you, Pam? Did you ever use the library for something? Oh, I, I mean, like, I spent a lot of time in the library as a kid. So it was just like anytime I was ever curious about something, it was like, oh, I wonder if there's a book on that. And so learning how to use the card catalog and just knowing how to use it just made it really easy to look that up on my own. And then later on, even um, after I was working there for a while, you start to realize that the Dewey Decimal System is just the same everywhere. And that's really cool. So <laughs> you don't even really need help if you kind of know in general that like, say, science is in the 500s, or art is in the 700s, or travel books are in the 900s, things like that. It's oh, it's, interesting. It's all the same wherever you go. But I, I'm sure that there are a lot of kids that, you know, especially kids that maybe are struggling with some of the s subjects that, you know, these people are trying to ban books on. So like race issues or um, sexuality issues, things like that. You know, those are all places where you can get um, answers in, in either nonfiction books or even, you know, maybe find a book, a fiction book that can give you a better perspective of what somebody that's different from you or somebody who's going through the same things as you as you might be going through so yeah and you have to think this is a dangerous slippery slope they start banning books like these that you mentioned at the top of this where does it end what what the, the right. bar will just keep being lowered and lowered until any old book is getting banned meanwhile there are people on the right who are throwing fits whenever a publisher or author decides to ban their own book for good reasons Case in point, a few Dr. Seuss books last year were recalled by the Seuss Foundation due to racist stereotypes. I think it was six books. And when that happened, Fox News couldn't stand it. Oh, Dr. Seuss is canceling himself. These people are hypocrites. Or, well, like to your point, to racial epithets, like this is why people argue against teaching to kill a mockingbird in school. It's because they, there are racial epithets in that book. But so instead of using those as a teachable moment to or like using it as a, an artifact of history, this book was written in a specific time. So these words were more commonplace, like the mm -hmm. knee jerk reaction should not be to just like pull those from the curriculum or pull those from school libraries. Right. Especially yeah. when you consider the overall message of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, there there may be some language that, you know, it's, it is offensive language, it should make you uncomfortable to read language like that. Um, but if that's all you fixate on, it's very clear that you did not internalize any of the story. And I just really, I cannot take this social tendency we have right now of people being uncomfortable, getting a little uncomfortable. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm totally good with like, you know, we've talked about trigger warnings and giving people content warnings. Hey, just in case up front, this show, this book does contain these themes. I'm all good with that. But when you have parents going to school districts and saying, I don't want my little angel to be subjected to To Kill a Mockingbird so no other children can have it, it's fucked up. And it's short-sighted. Yeah. And that actually mm -hmm. is a really good segue into the last point I wanted to bring up, which is what can you do to make sure that books are not banned where you live? Because, you know, I think we talk about this a lot in the context of conservative states, but books can really be banned anywhere, um, as is the case with something like To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, so 
I think that um, one thing to keep in mind in terms of what you can do to make sure this doesn't happen where you live is uh, to do what Laura usually tells you to do when you want to see change, which is go out and vote in your local elections and be cognizant of who you're electing to student boards or to library boards or anything like that. Get involved with your local town hall meetings, which is where a lot of these conversations are taking place and show up to, you know, champion for uh, access to knowledge in these books that are, you know, being banned. And then Laura also has an email that she pulled from a listener, right? Yeah. So Becky wrote into us. Becky is a librarian. And she wrote in saying that my in-draft tweet that I talked about last week is honestly pretty accurate to what happens when places try to ban books. Even And Becky goes on to say, even though I'm lucky to live in a more liberal community, anytime these topics make national news, the books on those lists are suddenly way more in demand than they ever were before. A few lists have been circulating, and I've had so many patrons come in and ask for those titles. The holds list for Mouse is very extensive now when it would have mostly been on the shelf prior to this. So Love it. another takeaway here is if you see a book being challenged or someone attempting to ban it, go out and buy it or go check it out from your local library. And maybe I misread one of the emails we received or something, but can you donate books to a library? Sorry if that's a really dumb you, question. You can, but you have to double check and make sure that your library is accepting donations. Okay. I believe because our library did, and, and don't like bring them crappy books that are falling apart. Like they can bind them. Right, and like new books. Them, but well, I'm just thinking hard. like, what if you donated 10 copies of Mouse to your local library if they wanted those? books like maybe you can call them up and help them that way the books are getting distributed to people uh, who are really looking to read them and maybe can't afford them yeah you can also donate them to goodwill as well goodwill Mm -hmm. takes books yeah yeah Yeah. there's also like a lot of times library branches will have friends of the library bookstores so if they have too many copies of a book they'll sell them and then all proceeds go back to the library or to help you know like local organizations as well yeah it's funny you mentioned that because we're going on a little trip this weekend and i saw there's one of those in the area we're going so oh, I was you like, should go hmm, i yeah. um there are a few some of my favorite bookstores are, are friends of bookstore uh bookstores so zian in the discord has a good idea too. donate to those tiny libraries the ones that people build like in their front yards <gasps> yes. and anybody can give a book take a book there's I actually love one right so around much. the corner from my house i should go put some books in there before I moved out of Chicago, I really wanted to put one on our street because we were right by the lake and there wasn't one on this particular street. But there were so many others in the neighborhood. I was like, it'd be so great to maintain one that people can access while they're walking to the beach. But then I was also like, well, my HOA sucks and it would probably take three years to approve this. So, <laughs> See, Andrew, what you do is you just do it. Say, fuck the HOA. Oh, my God. I would. The, he would come out with a chainsaw and... <laughs> Do you have any in your current neighborhood? No, probably couldn't Maybe. here. Maybe Why we not? could. I'll, I'll ask the HOA. That's a good yeah. idea. Or I'll just like throw books out on the sidewalk and be like, take them. Free. Take one. <laughs> it doesn't rain here. Free to a good home. <laughs> it doesn't rain. They don't need to be protected. Hey. <laughs> 
Well, I can't think of a more appropriate space for this ad, given that we're going from talking about banned books to alcohol sales here in a minute. Um, Life is hard sometimes, y'all, and we really do lean on the people we love the most when we need to talk. But speaking for myself, there is a ton of value in speaking to a neutral third party who can give some much needed perspective and help. Talkspace is the convenient way to connect with a licensed therapist from the comfort of your own device. Having unlimited access to a therapist via messaging and options for live video sessions is the first step to clearing up confusion and worry. It's also a great resource to turn to if you're having a rough patch with someone you love, be it a partner, friend, parent, sibling, child, whoever that special person is. Talkspace makes it easy to connect with a therapist that can give you valuable and honest insight about what you're going through. All of us have unique struggles and challenges, and if you haven't considered therapy yet, I want you to give Talkspace a try. No individual or relationship is perfect, but with the right tools and insight, your relationships can get stronger every day. Join Talkspace today and start the journey to happier, healthier relationships. Just visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use promo code M-I-L-L at sign up. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code M-I-L-L. All right. So now we're going to get on to a story about another industry that millennials are killing. Thank you for pointing this out, Andrew. I'd written a much more like headline sounding title for this story. Uh, Millennials are killing wine. Well, what aren't we killing? I thought we were saving it. I drink enough wine to save the wine industry. So does does Pat. (laughs) So what I thought was really interesting about this is that um, in an annual state of the U.S. wine industry report, a longtime analyst of the American wine market recently said, in prior reports, we noted the falling interest in wine among younger consumers, coupled with the encroaching retirement and decreasing wine consumption of baby boomers, this poses a primary threat to the business. I got to say, I didn't, I have never thought that there was a decrease in wine consumption amongst baby boomers. I feel feel like I see a lot of box wine on the shelves um, that some of these folks are buying. What do you guys think of this? Pam, I mean, why would you think wine is declining when somebody like you, a millennial, is still downing the wine. I I have no idea. I'm very perplexed by this um, headline, honestly, because also, um, you know, like, I take my friends wine tasting when they come up to visit or when they come out to visit. And there's so many young people that are out there. And also, you know, back when I was living in LA, my best friend, I would often go with her parents to their wine bar where they had cases of wine in the cellar. And there were a lot of young people there too. So I never really, um, I don't know, maybe that's just like my my bias in assuming because I've seen young people consuming wine. And you're in wine country. Young people must consume yeah, wine. That, that's yeah, that's the thing. You are right. out there. I wonder, and I was reading this article for an answer like this. How about the hard seltzers? Are they coming for the wine? I mean, it's a very different taste, but they're just so popular. We've spoken about on the show uh, many times, 
And you go to the food store now or the liquor store, there's so many different types of these hard seltzers. Every beer company is getting in on them. I think it's just kind of the the hot new thing. To be fair, I do feel like wine is an acquired taste and it's much easier and it's safer to take a gamble on a hard seltzer or on like a a spirit and a mixer, which you know is going to taste at least relatively good than it is to take a gamble on a bottle of wine that you've never heard of before if you're not like a big wine drinker or if you just like pick a bottle with a fancy label like there's no telling if like it's actually going to be good or not unless you have some kind of context for what you like in wine or like the yeah or even like the type of wine that you prefer to drink so yeah it's interesting that you bring up people's alcohol of choice andrew um and pam you alluded to this too in terms of like what's going to be the easiest thing that's going to appeal to the most people if i'm sharing with friends um even though alcohol sales are up very significantly (laughs) for the course of the pandemic which surprises no one um the this report that i'm talking about was alluding to wine sales plummeting 20% over the next decade potentially um and you know the wine business wants to blame millennials for this but looking at some numbers in terms of drink preferences i thought made this uh maybe a little more clear so wine is the overwhelming drink of choice for people 65 and up um for people aged 35 to 64 it's an even split between wine and beer and for people aged 21 to 34 it's pretty much an even split between wine beer spirits flavored malt beverages seltzers and hard ciders um and notably andrew hard ciders did trail slightly <laughs> just slightly but i was surprised i would have expected them to be more popular in our age group <laughs> hard ciders not hard seltzers oh excuse me excuse me there's a difference yeah there is, and Pat's really into hard ciders. That's like Angry Orchards gotcha. of the world, okay. or, or no, Strongbow. Glad, glad you brought that up. Yeah. Although pointing out too, like we're rapidly aging out of that group, twenty-one to thirty-four. Yeah. So rapidly, uh, I'm clinging on. I'm clinging. Oh, on. Okay. Okay. Drawing it out as slowly as possible. <laughs> no, you're right, though. You're right. But yeah, Andrew, tell us a little bit about alcohol sales in the U.S. over the last couple of years. So I wanted to bring this up a few weeks ago, but I was like, eh. But this is a a way better time to bring it up. Off-premise alcohol sales, meaning alcohol that you purchase in a liquor store, food store, whatever, that has uh, those sales in the U.S. have been steadily climbing over the past two years, continuing to climb in 2021, which is interesting. 2020 made sense. Everybody was staying at home, avoiding COVID. 2021, people started getting out more. 2022, obviously, people are, are still getting out plenty. And yet, those off-premise alcohol sales have continued to climb, even as on-premise, meaning bars, clubs, etc., on-premise alcohol sales returned to normal levels. So more people just are drinking at home or in the back of their Ford F-150. And um, actually, I know somebody who operates a liquor store, they hit a million dollars in sales for the first time ever. It's a 20-year-old 20, 20 liquor store. First time ever in 2021. Yeah. It's not surprising. I mean, when I just think about my own purchases, I definitely, like either me or Mark or like someone in my family, 
would go to the liquor store pretty frequently to buy stuff. I would say we were buying booze way more than we were pre-pandemic. Yeah. And that's just, you know, on the depression, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And you also think about so people kind of got accustomed to staying home more during 2020 and they realized, oh, damn it, you know, kind of a nice night sitting at home with uh, maybe a, a pack of hard seltzers and watching some Hulu or Netflix. Well, even if you were participating in Zoom parties, you know, it's like, yeah. well, let's try to make this as close to going for happy hour as possible. So not to mention it's way cheaper than a night out in a lot of 100%. cases. Oh, 100%. I mean, like, I think you and I have both talked about our uh, enjoyment of the Kirkland brand, like vodka and gin, gin. at yeah, Costco. I do the gin. Yeah. It's so, it's so cheap. Affordable. Yes. I bought yes. a bottle of Hendrix at Trader Joe's oh, yeah. the other day. $35 for something for, way yeah. smaller than the Costco gin bottle. Hendrix is nice, but it is pricier. Yeah. It's good stuff. Um, and, and not to mention, I still remember back 10 years ago or so, going out in LA, that was a guaranteed $100 night on, on Easy. alcohol yes. alone. Yes. And it's like, who wants to spend that much when you can spend $15 for probably more alcohol mm-hmm. at home? Right. So and higher quality, too. I mean, especially if you're, you know, on the younger side of things and you're going out with the intent to get drunk, the stuff they're serving at the bars and clubs you're going to probably is not the most high quality, whereas you can spend a little more to have a handle or whatever at home. Yeah. And just make drinks when you feel like it. I, because of the pandemic, I got more into bourbon. Pre-pandemic, I, I like, poured the stuff. I just, like, couldn't. And I learned how to drink it properly during the pandemic because, you know, we had nothing else to do. Um, But it is funny that we're spending so much time talking about other alcohol. I think this might be part of the wine industry's problem. Yeah. Is that... Do people just sit around and talk about wine? Like, I feel like it's more common if you're going to be talking about alcohol to be talking about things that you can mix, right? And like, yeah, the different flavor profiles you can get from things. I don't feel like I hear people sit around and just talk about wine. Or going to breweries. Yeah. You hear talk of that way more often. Breweries are all over this country, many places around the world. Wineries, they're less common. And actually, on the money point, there is a passage I wanted to read from this report that Laura initially cited. Um, Millennials have gravitated to beer and spirits rather than wine because the difference between a mass market brew and a world-class beer is just a few dollars. A really good cocktail at a restaurant at a restaurant might cost the same as a glass of mediocre wine. By comparison, good wine is more expensive than beer or spirits of comparable quality and benchmark wines are often shockingly expensive. So it's just more affordable to get a really good beer at a brewery or a a spirit if you're just getting a single drink than it would be to get a, a glass of wine or maybe a bottle of wine. We always see, you know, you can buy a bottle of wine at fancy restaurants and they're outrageously expensive (laughs) you're like no thank you i will say too that the thing about wine is that i I think that a lot of well box wine is becoming a little bit trendier than it has in the past for a very long time i felt like 
that was like the trashy wine, you know, to get a box wine. But then when you're looking at a bottle of wine, it's really only four glasses. So even if you're hosting, you're going to need much more bottles of wine to host, you know, even six people at a party, which is a smaller party than you would buying, you know, a handle of vodka, for example, and like creating this mixed drink that looks fancy, but was cheaper to mass produce in your kitchen than it was to uncork a few bottles of wine. Plus also like once you uncork a wine bottle, it's got a shelf life. And so unless you have, you know, some kind of like aeration tool or something like to to stop it on your own, which most people don't have, you're going to either want to drink the whole thing or, you know, know that you're going to drink it over the course of two days or you're just going to have to like cut your losses. So I can totally see why people might gravitate towards something else. Well, here's a question for all of us. Pam, I think we know the answer for you, but I'm interested in hearing you elaborate a little more. Do we drink wine? And if so, do we have a strong preference for red, white, or as it has been dubbed in my family, pink shit, rosé? <laughs> rosé. So I only drink red wine. I don't like white or rosé. And when I do drink red, it's typically during the cooler months. Um, Pat also prefers red, too. So red is usually what is in the house. When uh, we were in Chicago, I really did enjoy red wine during the winters. It just it, it gives you a, co- a cozy feeling. And obviously, it's not refrigerated. So that helps feel make it feel more like a winter drink. Yeah. So I obviously I do drink wine and I also prefer red. Good. Same. Same. But I will say I I can get occasional enjoyment out of a white. Um, like if I'm pairing it with a specific kind of food that white wine goes better with, or if it's like a hot day and you're having a nice chilled glass of something, that's nice. But mm-hmm. I would say like nine point eight times out of ten, it's gonna be red. Yeah. But that said, if we go to a gathering, so we go to a party or we're having people over, what is our go-to drink to provide? I kind of, it's got to be the hard seltzers. Everybody likes them. I'm not bringing beer. I just feel better when I drink the hard seltzers instead of beer. Like I just get more of a full feeling quicker with beer too. So yeah, it's going to be hard seltzers for me. And everybody loves them. Uh, I guess it depends on the party. So I'll usually get an input from people. So like, for example, when we did Thanksgiving with our family, like the bigger Thanksgiving gathering, we brainstormed as a unit of six siblings, <laughs> what we wanted to to drink, you know, and then we went from there. Because nobody wants to bring something that no one's going to drink. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I guess my answer is that it changes. Yeah, I think it depends on the crowd. Like if we're going somewhere where there's going to be a mixed group of people and I don't necessarily know everyone really well, I do find that grabbing seltzers are kind of the safe bet because most people are going to like at least one of the flavors that comes in the variety pack. Um, If I'm going to friends who I do know a little better, then... I'll bring whatever it is I know that crowd is into, be it beer. Um, But I have to say wine is probably the most uncommon thing for me to bring to a social gathering, which is weird because I really like wine. 
It's just Mm -hmm. something about it doesn't strike me as like something I would bring unless I was going to somebody like a fancy dinner. Like I got invited to like somebody's engagement dinner or something like that. I would bring a bottle of wine to that. But just to hang out in somebody's living room and get drunk, I I don't think I would bring that. (laughs) Yeah, I've brought it like to like a Friendsgiving, for example, because the the presumption is that people want to feel a little fancy when they're having dinner. So it's like, oh, I'll bring a bottle of wine or two. And here's a question. Tell me if I'm a dick. There have been situations (laughs) where I bring over a case of, let's say, hard seltzer or beer, and then we get to the end of the night. I'm ready to go. And there's some left over. Do I take them home or do I leave them there? I, I've i definitely taken my case of stuff home, but maybe I shouldn't have. Why am I not surprised that <laughs> you've done this? Like, oh, but what if I'm the only one that's drinking it, maybe? Uh, Is that okay? I'll just leave it or I'll like, I feel like that's on your host not to say, Andrew, you, yeah. you should just take them. I just like, sometimes it's like, maybe it's like Corona Light and only I'm drinking the Corona Light. So let me take them home. I don't know. I probably do enough for these people. So I'm like, let me just take it up <laughs> with me. I gave them enough. <laughs> I like how when you preface this by being like, am I a dick? Because you know the answer to the question you're asking. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, when I take something like that somewhere, I leave it unless unless somebody specifically is like, hey, you can take this with you. I don't have enough room in my fridge or yeah, whatnot. But like typically, nah, I feel like good etiquette is you leave it. Yeah, maybe. No, okay. I agree. I'm trying to maybe think of a specific instance. you should start instance. bringing it in like a, a presentation of sorts. So in like a cooler instead of in the box, because then oh. you could be like, oh, I'm going to take my cooler. So I'm just going to like take these out and just start going through the motions. And then at that point, the host will, if they're a good host, will be like, oh, don't worry about it. Just take it all like that. Yeah. Because you'll be to- struggling to to move things out. Yeah. Or I just need to take them all. I, in my defense, I don't always do that. But there have been a couple situations where I'm just like, I should take these home because nobody else is going to drink them. Or maybe I did ask the host. I forget. Anyway. Andrew's like the most interesting man in the world over here. He's like, I don't always take the beers that I bring over to your house <laughs> home. But when I do. Depends on the vibe. Yeah. Depends on the vibe. By the way, are you seeing a movie with me? I might leave the trash on the ground. <laughs> What if Laura and I are going with you? (laughs) Yeah, I know. I don't do that anymore. I learned my lesson. Um, So what do we think the American wine industry could do to win millennials back? If they're so worried about losing our business and our money, what could they do to make buying wine more appealing for people in our age group? I think I was thinking of about this a few minutes ago. They got to make it sexy on social media. Like it's got to be cool to post that you're drinking wine and then you get jealous of your other friends drinking wine. I feel like it's very in to say that you're at a brewery, for example. I they just yeah, I think some of these wine companies need to need to make it cool. I think it is a marketing problem for sure. Yeah. But I think part of it is that they need to meet Like, if we are becoming a demographic that they want to focus on more, they need to meet us where we are. And so that would be, one, considering the price point, um, but two, also considering the kinds of flavor profiles that are really popular with people in our age group. And I have no idea how that translates to wine, (laughs) 
Um, but perhaps fruitier wines might do better with this age group just because of the amount of seltzers we've talked about that people are into. Even the hard yeah. ciders are on the sweeter side. Um, so that might be helpful. I think um, Frosés kind of had a moment there. Mm. A couple of summers ago where people were really into that. So I think if there was more availability of like fun mixed drinks that you could make with wine like that. Maybe oh, yeah. It increases the appeal for people. Mm-hmm. I think accessibility is a big one, too. I think like similar to when you go to like a hipster coffee shop, it can be very intimidating to not know what to order. Um, and the atmosphere can also be very intimidating. So I, I just think that like, and I don't really know how they could do this, but just making the community feel approachable and more fun instead of just something that stuffy, snobbish people enjoy doing would probably go a long way. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's that wine seems really stuffy to younger I mean people. like I'll be honest I really like even though I've always grown up with wine country in my backyard I didn't really like start I, I didn't like know a lot about wine until I started going you know to tastings with my best friend's dad shout out to Papa Smith because he's a real one um and he like all of the people that he knew at these places they were all older but they never made me or my best friend feel like we were dumb for asking questions and they always wanted to like know about what we thought about the flavor so even if everybody was tasting it was like what do you taste like there are no wrong answers like don't feel shy just like speak up and stuff like that so I think that that really went a long way for both of us in terms of helping us feel comfortable navigating those environments because it can be kind of intimidating when you're when you're young and you don't know yeah. what you like or like what you're supposed to be tasting. Such a good point. And Pam, I assume you'd be willing to do some sponsored posts about wine on your social media channels. Oh, yeah. If any wineries want to sponsor me, uh, let's talk. <laughs> now it's time for a word from one of our favorite sponsors who are helping us out with this week's episode, Felix Gray. They are the blue light glasses that started it all. Felix Gray makes eyewear that improves daily screen time and creates a better relationship with technology. Thanks to these glasses, you can help reduce the eye strain, headaches, and insomnia that comes with staring at a screen for as long as we do every day. There have been studies that show that blue light filters built into phones don't actually work, and this is why Felix Gray glasses are so important. Those screen filters, they're just throwing a yellow filter over your phone, but that screen is still emitting that blue light. So enter Felix Gray's glasses, which are physically filtering that blue light out and creating a better experience for your eyes every day. Felix Gray lenses filter 15 times more of the blue light that's bothering you. If you go on your website, you can read more about this. It's super interesting, the science behind it. They really do care. These are a really great quality product. We're we're obsessed with them here at the show. Non-prescription and prescription glasses are available. Check them out now, felixgrayglasses.com slash M-I-L-L. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y, glasses.com slash M-I-L-L. Free shipping, free returns, and free exchanges. felixgrayglasses.com slash M-I-L-L. And links to all of our sponsors are in today's show notes. 
All right, time for our recurring segment here in the first half of 2022. Millennials make a commitment. What are our listeners committing to for 2022? Tori said, hoping to achieve a 300 deadlift this year. I'm committing to showing up to my lifting sessions regularly each week and competing three times this year. Good luck with that, Tori. Kiana said, I want to eat better and exercise more. I have cystic fibrosis and started a new medication in 2021 that made me gain about 30 pounds. And then quarantine didn't help. Most people with cystic fibrosis need the extra weight, but I never had that issue. So now I'm very overweight at only 5'1". More exercise will not only help me lose weight, but it'll help my lungs too. Good luck, Kiana. Angeli, who's here tonight, said, I want to exercise more at least once a week. I could go to the gym more, do a workout at home, or go on a hike. Ah, yes, Pam and I love those hikes. And Rachel said, fall in love with reading again and stay the fuck away from men. (laughs) Really? Why are men? Uh, just why are they? a question for the for uh, the ages, honestly. Uh, excuse you. I'm putting you on mute here in my Zoom. <laughs> uh, two more here. Michelle said, publish two chapters of my thesis, learn Auslan, and become a fully sick saber swinger. Michelle, I, I think you're listening is, live. But... Is that a Star Wars thing? Saber swinger. Sounds like Let's... It. it sounds badass. It sounds awesome. It's a gymnastic move, it looks like. And then finally, Greta said, having more sex with my husband. Yes. My work schedule has been keeping me super busy, but I want to make more of an effort to be more intimate with my husband on my days off and to be more spontaneous when it comes to when and where it happens. Oh, hello. Get it. Yes. Here's my challenge to you, Greta. Be like me. Have sex in uh, the basement of a New York City bar. One time. I did that one time. Aren't you glad you did it? You just look back on that and you're like, oh, of course. I'm so glad. No, I am. Because then I get to bring it up on the show like yeah, there you eight go. years later. It's your fun fact. <laughs> eight Remember, years everything ago, for the show. You were like, for the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is so uncomfortable and it smells in here. But for the show. Oh, is that piss on my foot? Ah. Uh. <laughs> Uh, well, you're really making this sound amazing with the <laughs> piss on the floor anecdote. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll read more next time on the show. We are getting towards the end here, but what is coming up in After Dark today on our Patreon? Um, we're going to be talking about what the dumbest thing we ever got in trouble for, both in school as and as well as as an adult. Uh, this was... A topic that we found over on our Facebook group. So a nice little plug for that as well. We're always looking to see what y'all are talking about over there, even if we are not interacting. So yeah, thanks for giving us some great ideas because we've definitely found some good topics for discussion in the past. We're watching you. That's facebook.com slash groups slash millennial show, by the way, if you want to join it. And we also wanted to take a quick moment to plug some of the fun bonus content we have over at patreon.com slash millennial. We just did a monthly hangout with our Bay patrons the other night, and it was so fun to see some of our faves. A monthly hangout with us and fellow patrons is one of the perks offered at the $10 supporter tier on Patreon. And we also offer other benefits like After Dark, Palace Intrigue, and the Millennial Variety Show at the $5 level. We're so thankful to all of you who pledge your support of the show at patreon.com slash millennial. It is the support 
that keeps this show going. Check it out today. And now it's time for some recommendations. Laura, I've been itching to tell you about this. Have you heard about this new show on Netflix called Murderville? I have heard about it, but I have not seen it yet. Okay, you gotta watch it. So Will Arnett, who I love, he is in character as a detective who can't keep a co-detective. It's kind of like the DADA role in Hogwarts. It's like, it's cursed. Um, And so each episode, he's joined by a different celebrity who's playing themselves. So for example, Conan (laughs) O'Brien in the first episode is playing himself. He's just himself. And they have to investigate a murder. But here's the twist. The guest celebrity does not have a script and is just working off of the crime scene and what what each suspect has to say. Then that celebrity has to guess at the end who committed the murder. And it's really funny. It's like laugh out loud funny. And it's fun because you, the viewer, are playing along at home because you're just you're in the same shoes as the celebrity. So you have to kind of keep an eye out for the clues and then you can make your own guess before uh, the celebrity and they reveal who really was the um, murderer. So you got to check it out. Murderville on Netflix. I'm no longer annoyed. I'm paying $20 a month for Netflix. (laughs) And you got over it? I got over it temporarily. I also got over it temporarily because Ozark Season 4 Part 1 is out. It's actually been out for a couple weeks at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I started it late. I've only seen the first episode, but I really liked what I was seeing in the first episode. I feel like they're setting up for a really good uh, end to the series with this part one and part two uh, final season bullshit, which I hate. Like, I love this show, but God damn it, do I hate the trend of splitting a final season into two smaller seasons. It's just to make money. That Yeah, that's the only reason. It's so annoying, but I love this show. So definitely watch it. I will say the cliffhanger at the end of part one is like, eh. Okay. So you won't be as annoyed by the end of it. Like, I can't wait to see how it ends, but it just wasn't very enticing. Okay. That's good to know. In my opinion. And I want to throw it back to our discussion on banned books from earlier this episode and uh, recommend supporting your local libraries uh, and or reading slash buying some books that are on these banned lists that have been popping up everywhere. If you have any feedback about today's episode, you can contact us by writing directly to millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional now newly repaired on millennialshow.com. Also, follow us on social media. We are Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and our new TikTok. But our TikTok is Millennial Pod. So Insta, Twitter, Facebook, Millennial Show, TikTok, Millennial Pod. Thanks, everybody, for listening to today's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. 